Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Okay, let's get going. Uh, so welcome to the second last SNID event of the year. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today on this, what has turned out to be a beautiful, I guess, spring day here in Kingston. Um, and it's also St. Patrick's Day, so happy St. Patrick's to all who celebrate. Um, I would first like to acknowledge that SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which is located on the shores of Lake Ontario on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and the Haudenosaunee to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes, including Lake Ontario, on whose shores many of us here today reside. SNID is com committed to hosting anti-colonial scholars and practitioners, praxis and projects, so last week with Dr. Myra Hurd, we considered how the settler colonial state is implicated in waste infrastructural divisions and the marketization of waste and recycling here in Canada. Um, and this week's guests will continue the discussion of waste uh, with, with a variety of foci, um, but they are all also attentive to how colonial and neo-colonial histories haunt waste and waste work across the globe. I also want to draw your attention to, to anti-colonial speakers who we will have with us in two weeks from now, so March 31st. Uh, we are very lucky to have the Black Studies co-chairs, uh, Dr. Vanessa Thompson and Dr. Daniel McNeil, join us on that date. So we warmly invite you to come to that as well. So with that, I will briefly introduce today's panelists. We have three early career researchers and stellar scholars in their own right here with us today um, to continue this discussion on waste that we started last week. Uh, so the way this will work is that each of them will speak for 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and then depending on time, I have a few questions that I might ask them, or we'll just open it up to all of you if there are some questions out there. Um, so please feel free to drop comments and questions into the chat as we go. If there's anything that comes up for you or you find anything really interesting, um, please, please do that. So I, we will go today in the order that they appear on the poster. Uh, so I'll introduce each first, and then I'll hand it over to Keisha, Dr. Fevrier. Um, so Dr. Keisha Fevrier is an assistant professor in geography and planning and black studies here at Queens. She's also the Queens National Scholar in Radical Black Ecologies and a co-principal investigator of the Global Economies and Everyday Lives Lab. Her research lies at the intersection of black studies and waste discard studies. Uh, and her primary focus has been on electronic waste recycling in Ghana with deep attention to how the geopolitics of race shape people's experience of and in this industry. Uh, and her current work is turning to the ecologies of the used textiles trade. Second, we have Dr. Mohamed Rafi Arafin, as an assistant, who is an assistant professor in geography at the University of British Columbia. His work focuses on how systems of disposal, like sanitation systems, are intricately intertwined with power. Uh, and much of his research has been in Cairo, Egypt, uh, where he looks at how waste is implicated in both state repression, but also popular resistance to this repression. He is currently taking a critical lens to understanding new forms of governance, how these are emerging um, with respect to wastewater-based epidemiology, uh, such as we're seeing with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And then finally, we have Dr. Josie Whitmer, a postdoctoral fellow in geography and planning here at Queens. Uh, her work has, has been focused on informal recyclers or waste pick, pickers in Ahmedabad, India, and in Vancouver, Canada. Her recent work has investigated the relationships between waste governance and women's well-being in the urban margins. And she's now turning her attention to how smart cities are changing the ways that uh, women waste pickers work and are made precarious. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Evrier. So I'll try to share my screen and hope everything goes well. What screen are you seeing? Can everybody see the presentation? Yep. Yes, we can see it. Perfect. No notes, right? No notes. Okay, great. I need to figure out how to get everybody's head. Okay, great. So, hello everyone and welcome to this panel discussion on all things waste. I would like to start this presentation by running through a few slides that look at two forms of waste, post-consumer waste, and my focus is more on electronic waste, and industrial waste from resource extraction. Um, for those of you who were present at the last NID talk, Myra Hood basically sort of laid, out, laid the foundation from which I will speak today. So my first real engagement with waste work started in 2012, uh, while assisting with community engagement activities on behalf of the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. At that time, 21 communities were involved in a little more process, which was part of a bigger project spearheaded by the NWMO, on behalf of nuclear electricity producers, including Ontario Power Generation, New Brunswick Power Corporation, and Hydro-Quebec. The project entails finding a willing host community that would consent to the agency's plan to build a deep geological repository to store Canada's used nuclear fuel. Currently, two communities have advanced to the next stage. Uh, so the map here shows uh, the 20, 21, 22 communities that were involved and the two communities that are going forward um, in terms of the testing. Uh, the image here, uh, so while we were doing this project, um, this is sort of like a mobile transportation unit. It's an exhibit that uh, would travel to the 21 communities that were part of the learning process. Um, and the exhibition basically shows how the news, uh, used nuclear fuel rods would be transported from the dry storage, a lot of them in South Bruce or at reactor sites, to the deep geological repository wherever it's actually built, if it's built. Um, I was part of this showcase, I think in 2013, when we uh, went to the community of Manitouage, which is outside um, Thunder Bay. So another project which I was sort of tangentially involved in was the Giant Mine Re Remediation Project. So Giant Mine was a large gold mining operation in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. Since the closure of the mine, the government has been in conversation with the community and other stakeholders in a somewhat protracted process to find a solution to manage the 237,000 tons of arsenic trioxide waste that is buried in underground caverns on the site. 
this waste is highly toxic and um, the solution going forward is freezing it underground because trying to sort of remove it or transport it would have severe consequences if there is some level of exposure. So this brings me somewhat to an end of my sort of professional work uh, in terms of thinking about different forms of waste in Canada. My own research looks at another category of, category of waste, which is e-waste, which gets a lot more attention in policy circles. Electronic waste encompasses a wide variety of discarded electrical and electronic equipment and devices that are either at or nearing the end of life and those destined for recycling. Uh, my research on electronic waste in Ghana was guided by the following question. Well, there's more than one question, but uh, for this presentation, I'm focusing on this one. How does the experience of those employed at the tail end of the consumer electronics value chain assist in understanding the simultaneous devaluation of black spaces and the devaluation and exploitation of black bodies within the global economy? So I'm, I'm, for this project, I'm putting, I'm focusing on a critical race line. So I'm looking at the transboundary movement of waste from a very uh, critical race lens. So here is an image of my uh, research site that I sort of created using Google Maps. So if you can see my cursor, this is an informal dump where all or most of the uh, materials that cannot be recycled, so it's rubber or whatever, this is where it's dumped and sort of burnt. Uh, burnt. It's also an informal dump for residential and commercial uh, waste in the uh, vicinity. This here is the scrapyard. This is a footprint of the scrapyard. But if you go online, you'd hear the largest or the biggest, or there's a lot of uh, sensationalization about the size of the, uh, of, of the scrapyard. It's not that big. Um, so this is my scrapyard here. And this um, is the informal or slum settlement where most of the EOS workers lived. I actually wanted to remove the Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it's a sort of a negative, it's not sort of, it's a negative connotation used to sort of describe the entire community. And, but I'll not go down that line because we might be talking about wasting that way. But yeah, so this is a community where most of the EOS workers live. And this, um, at the time of my research, uh, my last trip to Ghana, this is a waste recovery site that is, that was under construction, but uh, I think now it's operational. While they are not yet recycling e-waste, it is the um, plan for them to, to start recycling e-waste, which would sort of leave, lead to a sort of displacement of e-waste workers as uh, waste recycling becomes more formalized. The image above captures uh, the three main pillars of research on e-waste management. In its infancy, the research focused on the abundance of electronic waste generated annually in both developed and developing nations. For example, the Global E-Waste Monitor in 2020 estimates that 53.6 million metric tons of e-waste was generated worldwide in 2019, but only 17.4% was collected and recycled. If my math is correct, that means about 44 million uh, tons of e-waste is unaccounted for. 
some proportion can we can assume is landfill incinerated and or improperly disposed of, even exported. The toxicity of e-waste, so that's the next leg of my three-legged stool, is still a major focus of research on e-waste. Researchers are focused on the contaminative effects of improper processing, recycling, and disposal. Example, water, air, water, and soil pollution, but also the occupational and health impacts on workers. Studies, especially in Ghana um, at Agrobrochia site, have found high levels of lead contamination in the breast milk of lactating mothers who work and live in close proximity to the scrapyard. The third leg of the zoo, where my research sort of unfolds and where research uh, focuses on the circular economy, urban mining, and value chain research, is more concerned with the residual or economic value that's still entered in electronic waste. So more images from my research. So the pictures on this slide are from the Agrobroshi scrapyard in Ghana. I would characterize these images as illustrative of the unmaking of waste. By unmaking, I mean processes that promote the development of parallel circuits of exchange premise on the recovery and valorization of e-waste. So here we see fragmented pieces of uh, air conditioning units, monitors, and other household and commercial appliances. Um, the colorful uh, cables that you also see indicate the extraction of copper wiring, which was once housed within the rubber. At the time of my research, there was no market for the rubber, hence it's stockpiling. Uh, electronic waste recycling in Abroshi is not focused entirely on recovering metals from e-waste, uh, electronic devices, scrap metal recovery from other metal bearing equipment, such as derelict vehicles and mining equipment, also occurs in the scrapyard. Within the scrap metal recovery sector, engine mounts, as you can see in one of the photos, uh, fetch higher prices when sold to steel manufacturing plants. And one of the reasons they, fit, they fetch higher prices is you have this HMS, HMS1, HMS2, and I think HMS3 categories. HMS1 category scrap metal fetching higher prices. It has something to do with either the, quali the, quant the quality of the steel. While reusable parts are collected and resold to refurbishers, the vast majority of US workers are engaged in activities that recover copper, aluminum, and iron and steel from waste with copper being the most um, prized due to a higher value on international and local scrap markets. Unlike the case in Guayu, China, very little gold and other precious metals are recovered in Ghana. This could be because of lack of resources to invest in technologies to recover minute pieces of gold found in some electronic equipment. There was, however, a very small market for circuit boards, used circuit boards that would be ground into fine powder and sold to middlemen. Um, so here is a, this table is from my research. It lists the negotiated prices of scrap metal within the informal sector in Ghana. The prices, the sort of values you see. Uh, so I've sort of looked at what the prices were based on previous, previous research in 2010, in 2012, and my own field data in 20, 2017, 2018. And you can see that the prices are comparable except for iron and steel. Uh, where there was a marked uh, difference in the uh, price that um, I was told about in my research. And some of that has to do with um, the availability of scrap, 
the quality of the scrap and the actual enforcement of the ban on the export of ferrous scrap metal in Ghana. Um, this image maps the geographical reach or extent of the scrap metal sector in Ghana. All the information captured in the image came from my field interviews over the combined period of eight months. It shows that new use and end of life uh, ele waste electronics in Ghana originates primarily from the USA, Europe, continental Asia, and some African countries. The corresponding outflow of scrap metals supplies domestic, regional, and international markets. India, China, and other Southeast Asian countries are the main destinations of Ghana's ferrous and non-ferrous scrap. China, Germany, Sweden, and Nigeria are also significant importers of scrap metal, including lead and copper. Again, uh, Ghana actually has a law prohibiting the export of ferrous scrap, which would be iron and steel. But based on my diagram, you can still see that iron and steel are still being exported from the country, despite the fact that there is this prohibition against exporting it. And that a lot of that is done illegally, um, but uh, includes a lot of foreign middlemen who are working with the scrap dealers to find um, interesting routes of getting the scrap metal out of the country. So, I've talked about the scrap metals. I'm sorry, I've talked about e-waste. Um, if you Google e-waste and Ghana, there's a lot there. But uh, I want to throw us back to the very beginning. Um, so I've turned my focus here away from e-waste and look at toxic, toxic mining waste in Ghana, which is not part of my research, but I want us to sort of, sort of do a, a somewhat of a contrast between the two forms of waste and why is it that electronic waste is such a central topic in Ghana, uh, in academia internationally, whereas a lot of this mining waste uh, remains in place, remains invisible or is imperceptible. Um, the image on this slide illustrates often hidden stockpiles of industrial mining waste in Ghana. So the first image, which is this one here, it's a, uh, uh, Edikan Gold Mine, it's a large scale, low grade conventional open pit mine in Ghana. All right, and you can see the extents of it, a lot of this waste material on, uh, to the top of the picture. And if you look at the extent, you have to ask yourself, what has happened to all this waste rock? Where is it? Why isn't it as publicized as the issues of electronic waste that's entering into, into Ghana? I'm going to try to be quick. The next picture here is the Oyubasi Anglo Gold Mine in Ghana, which has a long history of poor management practices that has led to the pollution of freshwater bodies. Um, this hair is a tailings pond uh, attached to Newmont Gold, and it has a, a hazard, an extreme hazard uh, rating, and that is based on the sort of the hypothetical um, uh, hypo hypothetical failure of the dam and the sort the magnitude of the um, effects of that failure. So loss of life, destruction of natural vegetation, destruction of infrastructure, all of these. So it has an extremely high rating, but then most Ghanaians don't know about it. Most of us don't talk about it. Uh, this is another image of a tailings pond in Ghana. I'm just trying to stay within my 15 minutes. Um, so what does, so what's the, what, 
what's the point of all of this and why am I, why am I interested in waste work? Why did I do this research? Uh, mapping the footprint of this consumer electronics value chain shows how uneven geographies are maintained and reproduced at both the front and tail end of the system. At the front end during resource extraction, large quantities of toxic mining waste contaminate freshwater bodies, soil, water, and air. Uh, soil and air, sorry. Rural residents are either displaced as their, as their lands are appropriated to allow for mining expansion, or they become a source of cheap and expendable labor for mining corporations. At the tail end of the value chain, economic and political forces work to transfer the responsibility for hazardous waste management and thus shift costly, low value, and more toxic recycling to emerging and developing economies. The, their informal workers engage in dirty, dangerous, and precarious work increasingly depicted within recycling and circular economy discourses as not only a positive environmental strategy, but as a viable livelihood strategy for the urban poor in the global south. An examination of the informal, informal electronic waste recycling in Ghana, and I would say elsewhere in the global south, from a critical race line shows that the racial, uneven, and hierarchical differentiation of places and people and their contingent disposability within various iterations of capitalism are the conditions of possibility for the emergence of informal e-waste recycling and scrap metal recovery in agrobloshi. This is the result of continued regimes of racialized accumulation. My claim is also rooted in the fact that racial structures that underpin centuries of capitalist racial exploitation from the colonial past, the green neoliberal presence continues to live on. So this is a quote from that I found really captured the essence of my research. I will not read it. It's been up on the screen. Um, I have just one more slide to talk about other key thoughts. Um, and if recycling as a waste management strategy is premised on commodification of waste streams into new rounds of wealth accumulation, how does the idea of a circular economy address non-commodified waste streams generally, but more importantly, hazardous waste produced and stored at source? Thank you so much. So that's just key thoughts for us to talk about, or we can go back and sort of focus on this really beautiful quote. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Fevrier. That was great. Uh, next, we have Dr. Rafi Arafin. Yeah, thanks so much for that great talk. I think there's lots of resonances with um, what I'm going to talk about. Give me one second. Sorry, one second. Great, so uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm joining you all from Vancouver, which is located on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh. So my contribution to this panel today emerges from my research, which traces the development and contestation of Kairos garbage and sewage systems. In my very, very short talk, I wanna pick up on a point from Myra Hurd's talk last week, namely that systems of disposal are sites where structures of oppression and extraction are laid bare, but often go unrecognized. 
So Heard pointed to colonialism as a process that continues to impact waste mismanagement in Canada. Here, I'll explore similar dynamics in Egypt. I'll argue that to better account for and resist contemporary projects of dispossession and privatization in waste systems, we must, as Gillian Hart would argue, denaturalize dispossession. By this, I mean unearthing the historical and contemporary forces across geographies that have positioned sanitation as a lucrative sector through the commodification of waste. So my contribution today shows how colonialism and capital have and continue to articulate in techno-managerial fixes to what is a socio-ecological and political crisis, the problem of urban waste. So approximately 2 billion tons of solid municipal waste and 359 billion cubic meters of wastewater are produced across the world every year. At least one third of the world's solid waste and about half of the world's wastewater is not properly managed, resulting in devastating environmental injustices. Unmanaged waste are forceful material reminders of global capitalism's unequal excesses. But furthermore, the impacts of unmanaged and even managed waste exceed their terrestrial harms. So in 2016, 1.6 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions were created from the treatment and disposal of solid waste worldwide. These emissions that year alone counted for 5% of global emissions. So the Anthropocene then is undoubtedly, as Gabrielle Hecht argues, the apotheosis of waste. Waste has become a planetary problem, but the problem of waste is also being framed by global capital as an opportunity. Industry and market research reports estimate that the global waste management industry is valued at $1,612 billion. And yet these massive valuations only represent waste streams that have already been rendered valuable. Streams that have yet to be rendered profitable are no longer capitalist values antithesis, but as geographers Gidwani and Reddy argue, waste is values mobile limits, a fiercely sought after frontier that marks at once values endpoint, but also at the same time, its possibility for further accumulation. Many of these frontiers of waste profiting are in the global South, where once state-run semi-formal or patchwork small-scale collectors, recyclers, and managers are being pushed aside through processes of dispossession. Now, Cairo is an important city from which to understand the global politics of the commodification of waste, because it is a paradigmatic case of privatization in the solid waste management fields and was, was the site of, in, in the 1980s, uh, the largest sewer upgrade schemes in international development history. In an infamous 2002 decision, Cairo Solid Waste Management was contracted to multinational corporations, which in turn dispossessed the Zebelin, Cairo's semi-formal garbage collectors and recyclers, from a trade that they had developed over several decades. Recounting the lead-up to the first day the multinational companies began their work, Nabil, a prominent organizer in the Zebelin community, Explain to me in detail how Cairo was split into four districts, which were then sold off to multinational companies. From the tone and precision with which he detailed the state-led takeover of Cairo's waste management, it was clear that he had told this story many, many times over. In the first five days of the new system, garbage collectors tried to resume the work they had been doing for decades, 
But as Nabil explained, they were, quote, met by police who told garbage collectors, it's finished, the multinationals are here. So contracts for Cairo's waste management were sold by the Egyptian government and bought by foreign companies because Cairo's waste and its collection were positioned as profitable. In an interview, I asked Leila, uh, a development consultant and former Minister of Environment, about the profit margins of Cairo's garbage. She responded, quote, garbage is not profitable. That is the basic myth that keeps the city from understanding what it wants to do. It is not profitable, it is a public health issue. But because for years they have exploited the Zebelin and they've accepted it, the government thinks, hey, it must be lucrative. But no one has calculated the true cost. So Leila went on to organize a study of waste collection costs and found that in fact, the margins of Cairo's collectors and recyclers were far from large sources of profit. The question remains, how then was waste transformed into a commodity? So Leila argued that in part, what allowed for the commodification of Cairo's waste and attracted the attention of foreign capital was a long-standing discursive practice in which Cairo's local system of waste management was framed as backward. Leila argued that this produced what she called a quote, perceived modernity of Western sanitation systems. I, of course, uh, you know, couldn't resist for asking um, her to expand on this phrase, perceived modernity. And she replied, quite frankly, Rafi, look behind us. We have skyscrapers. Gesturing outside the window to Cairo's Nile City Towers, which house a five-star hotel, an expensive shopping mall, and elite businesses, she mimicked anti-Zebelin arguments. How can you propose for a city that looks like this, a system based on dirty, traditional garbage collectors? You must be mad. So the idea that garbage is a commodity, in conjunction with the perceived modernity of Western sanitation, Leila claims is, quote, the whole crux of this problem. Now, Cairo's garbage is not the only waste product being transformed into an object of economic value. On the outskirts of Greater Cairo in the suburbs New Cairo, a private-public partnership is selling treated wastewater back to the suburbs' residents. New Cairo, a satellite city east of Cairo's downtown, was founded in 2000 and is home to some of the country's most prestigious private universities, elite hotels, and golf clubs. The most impressive of these is perhaps the Mirage City Golf Club. But transforming desert land into green golf courses is a difficult feat, especially when you're lacking water. Since its founding, New Cairo has been plagued by issues with water delivery. But in 2009, the government entered into a partnership with an international firm to treat the suburbs wastewater and sell it back to New Cairo's residents to water their vast unsustainable greenery. In 2018, the World Bank praised New Cairo's wastewater treatment project as a leading example of a sewage resource recovery scheme that involves private capital. So over the 20th century and into the present, waste has transformed from a threat to, a, to the city into a frontier of surplus accumulation. In the full paper, I traced the process of commodification over a hundred year time span. But in this presentation, I'm going to share how the process of commodifying Cairo's waste began with the sewage system right at the turn of the 20th century. 
Uh, for this presentation, when I use the term commodification of waste, and we can talk about this in the discussion, I'm really referring to an abstraction here that is both spatial and temporal that includes the commodification of waste itself, but also the collection, transport, storage, treatment, and, and reuse. So at the turn of the 20th century, both sewage and garbage posed a threat to the health of Cairo's residents and the city's continued expansion. Reports dating back to the mid 19th century attribute the city's relatively high death rate to overflowing cesspools and mountains of garbage, which accumulated on the outskirts of the city. Yet discussions of waste as only a threat began to shift. So this started with the colonial construction of Cairo's sewage and drainage system. Charles Carkey James, a British colonial engineer, was tasked with the job after completing sanitation projects across India. But before he got to work on the system around 1909, he completed a survey of the city. Now in this survey, James wrote, quote, the sanitary conditions of the city at the time were very defective. In the absence of sewers, the most modern hotels, residences, and flats were compelled to deal with their sewage by means of underground cesspools and soakways. Landlords of properties in the best quarters of the city have in some cases had to pay away practically the whole rent in pumping the soakways. Colonial officials understood the lack of a proper sewage system, not just as a threat to public health, but as a threat to accumulation. I wanna point out two features of Cairo's first sewage system. First, when surveying the city, James broke up areas and cities by three, uh, areas and houses rather, by three classifications. This effort cataloged and built into infrastructure colonial class relations. Second, and what I'll focus on here, is the construction of a sewage farm. It was at the sewage farm that James was able to begin the process of transforming sewage from a threat to quote, landlords in the best quarters of the city into what geographers Demaria and Schindler would call a waste-based commodity. So located at the end of the system in the northeastern outskirts of Cairo, the farm in Gebel al-Asfar received the partially treated sewage of the city. James was adamant that this project was a scheme that extracted value out of sewage and would yield handsome profits. So surveying the state of the farm in 1915, James wrote, quote, about 35,000 trees have been planted. With careful supervision, the farm will be a source of great profit to the Egyptian government, probably yielding a net return of 10 to 15 pounds per acre annually. The profits from the sewage farm will be an increasing figure year by year as house connections are made and the volume of sewage increases. But a major setback to the commodification of waste is the abject nature of the work. Physical risk from close work with sewage is compounded by symbolic vectors of contagion and filth. For James, the question of who would build and then work on his sewage farm was a concern quickly remedied by a request to the, to the Department of Prisons. So he wrote, quote, by arrangement with the prisons department, 600 convicts were employed. They were housed in a camp constructed on the farm. This practice in a general way was quite successful. And by the end of the five years, about 374 acres were ready for cultivation. Another archival document I obtained in Arabic reported that in 1925, the head of the Department of Prisons actually issued an order to establish permanent housing for prisoners on the Gebel al-Asfar sewage farm. 
So this early history of colonial infrastructure intimately shaped its post-colonial future. With Egypt's open-door economic reforms, post-colonial Egypt became a renewed frontier for British capital. In fact, on her visit to open a wastewater treatment plant in Cairo in September of 1985, Margaret Thatcher, yes, Margaret Thatcher opening up a wastewater treatment plant, um, delivered a speech conveying how excited she was to see the project's, quote, cooperation was not just between governments, but that, quote, the private sector is also well represented. These newly forged capital flows were built, of course, on enduring legacies of British colonialism. Commenting that the British were leaders in wastewater technologies, Thatcher went on to say, quote, the first sewage, the first sewage scheme in Cairo was designed by a British engineer, Mr. Kerkey. His system with some extension and expansion is the one operating today. Surely he would have been delighted, as am I, that it is British engineering and British financial skills that are once again playing an important role. So in the full paper, I argue that it was at sites like the sewage farm that the process of commodifying waste began. This history is not just in the past, but as we see from Thatcher's 1985 speech, intimately shapes the contemporary relationship between global capital and sanitation. The idea that waste is profitable and that Western sanitation is inherently more efficient emerged from long-standing colonial relations. And these relations, of course, endure. While there have been attempts to reform the solid waste and wastewater sectors in Egypt over the past few years, they failed to challenge colonial assumptions and capital's interest over public health. As an example, at Tamimi Mashereka, an international law firm, has encouraged its corporate clients to see solid waste in Egypt, quote, not as just a necessity, but as a growing opportunity. Furthermore, in March 2021, a French firm, Suez, signed a, two, a 28 million euro contract to manage what is now the largest wastewater treatment plant in Africa. The plant is Gabil al-Asfar the same one built by a British colonial engineer to supply the sewage farm. Upon receiving the contract, a representative of Suez said, quote, our historical presence in the country for more than 70 years, combined with the expertise of our employees in water treatment service, allowed us to win this emblematic contract. So these snippets of my larger paper show how colonial relations and capital continue to influence how Cairo's waste is mismanaged precisely because of the drive to commodify it. So I'll end there, um, but I'm happy to chat further about with other panelists um, and, and the audience as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Arifin. Uh, finally, we have Dr. Whitmer. All right, thanks. I'm going to share my screen as well. Just one moment. All right, can you see my presentation but not my notes? All right. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Carolyn and Aisha, for inviting me to be part of this panel today. I'm really excited about the, the conversations that we're having. 
So my work with waste has so far really focused on issues around waste labor and waste workers navigating and surviving unequal cities. And so my master's work um, started out with um, informal recyclers or binners in Vancouver's downtown east side. And I was looking there at the perceived health and geographies of survival that workers were, were using and living through there. And then my PhD research was situated in India in the city of Ahmedabad. And so today I'm going to just talk through one small, very focused in piece of my dissertation work. And this is a paper that was just accepted last week by Environment and Planning E. And it's about the impact that discursive and material efforts aiming to clean up city streets in India are having for people who rely on accessing waste on the streets for their livelihoods. So in India, recycling services have typically been undertaken by a large population of informal recyclers or waste pickers who generate a daily income by collecting, sorting, and selling recyclable materials from roadsides, waste bins, doorsteps, and dump sites in the informal economy. So scholars, activists, and NGOs have documented the stigmatization and precarious work and living conditions and health threats experienced by these workers around the world. And in India, this marginalization is further complicated and reproduced by the enduring structure of caste and the perceived embodied impurity of untouchability that's associated with Dalit identities and these waste occupations. Further, in Ahmedabad, which is the sixth largest city in India, waste picking is largely a feminized occupation. So an estimated 95% of the city's informal recyclers have typically been women. And I will just add that that's, that statistic is based on data that's on um, women doing work or workers on city streets. The dump site, the main dump site in India, there's tons of workers there and it's a different situation, but um, I'm, my research is focused on city streets. So women recyclers in Ahmedabad occupy precarious social locations as low-income Dalit women as they navigate a highly visible and stigmatized occupation in public space. And so although waste and recycling work has long been feminized, stigmatized, and informal, this landscape of solid waste management in Indian cities is currently shifting as urban cleanliness and modern scientific waste management, um, waste management has emerged as major social and political imperatives in sort of this aesthetic visioning and goals of producing world-class cities in India. So there's a lot of overlap with the last two presentations with mine. Uh, so Gidvani and Corwin describe a new waste governance regime in India comprised of a suite of recent governance mechanisms aiming to clean up urban spaces and to modernize solid waste management practices. And so just to briefly introduce um, a couple of key mechanisms relevant to this paper, um, the first is the Swatch Bharat Abhiyan, which is a popular national cleanliness mission introduced by the ruling neoliberal Hindu nationalist BJP party in 2014. And so this was sort of in response to concerns um, about hygienic hazards and the poor aesthetic image associated with waste, sewage, and open defecation in Indian cities. And so this campaign is largely focused on eliminating the practice of open defecation through a, a broad toilet building campaign. And it was aimed at also at shaping citizens' cleanliness behaviors in public space through things like anti-littering campaigns. And so one thing to note too, is that this photo here is of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, this is part of his announcement, uh, you know, news 
that came out at that time. And so he's actually from Gujarat state, which is where Ahmedabad is situated. And so Ahmedabad, the city and Gujarat were uh, constantly sort of accelerated and upheld as examples to demonstrate cleanliness and modernization and economic development as well. So to me, Ahmedabad is a very interesting site for this because it, it is um, these sort of aesthetic um, images are so uh, strongly associated with this particular prime minister and political party in that space. And so as this cleanliness mission sort of gained momentum in the early 2010s, the country's solid waste management rules were then revised. And so where previously the rules on solid waste were pretty vague um, and enabled the informal sector to sort of do its thing, RE recycling, um, the new rules were permeated with requirements to modernize and mechanize solid waste collection and to intervene in sort of these problems of waste management through expert-led technical and capital-intensive solutions. And so these are some photos from some of those documents that show this new vision of what waste management should look like. And so following the rules, Ahmedabad city officials introduced a new sort of public-private contracting model for municipal solid waste collection across all zones of the city in early 2017 with the stated goal of, quote, achieving a fully mechanized waste transport system, end quote. And so as we've learned today from Dr. Savory and Arifin also, in this emerging sort of tech techno-managerial waste regime, waste has been commodified in this context and reimagined as a new market or an opportunity for businesses to capitalize and profit from, or and produce new forms of wealth through, through waste. So it's within this shifting waste landscape that I was actually in the city talking to women recyclers about health and well-being um, between 2016 and 2018 as this was all sort of rolling out. So in her call for a more rigorous treatment of the body in urban political ecology, Sapna Doshi asks, what would it mean to learn urban political ecology through the experience of those upon whose bodies environmental struggles are waged daily? So although current approaches to governing solid waste in India are rendering waste as this technical problem to be managed, a growing body of feminist anti-colonial urban and discard studies scholarship demonstrates that waste and its management and metabolisms or flows through the city are deeply embedded in social meanings, cultural norms, and power relations. And so for me, engaging with the materiality and social constructedness of waste necessitated a focus on labor or waste labor and the bodily and relational experiences of, of doing this work. And so for me, embodying urban political ecology is then useful for articulating the ways that symbolic and material processes of cleaning up the city are touching down unevenly and the ways that they're navigated by women recyclers who live and work in the urban margins and these workers are people who tend to be excluded in this visioning of the city and what modern waste management can look like. And so this data comes from an ethnographic study that I carried out in Ahmedabad over two five-month trips um, between 2016 and 2018. And that was for my, my doctoral dissertation. And so I worked there with Mubina Qureshi, who's photographed in the top left-hand photo. Um, who's a local freelancer and researcher, and I worked with her as she was the interpreter with me for both of these trips. And so um, after an initial survey of 401 women recyclers across 10 areas of the city, we then conducted interviews with 46 women, and then we returned a year, or I returned a year later, and we followed up with 36 women 
And a lot of these interviews were conducted either while women were working, the, the picture here on the far right, we were walking and walking and talking with her as she was working. Um, we also would sit and sort materials with women. That was our most common uh, interview setting. Or sometimes we would just take a break like Mubina is here with a woman or go to her home and, and, and interview there. We then in the second year also held a series of sort of informal group discussions and workshops with participants, friends, and neighbors to discuss and verify the preliminary findings and to talk about local resources and services together. And so that's a photo in the middle there. And uh, the research also relies on insights and interviews with local activists and organizers. Um, and we also did some workshops with those organizations, as well as an analysis of media and policy documents. So when I asked women recyclers to tell me about their work, they frequently and immediately spoke about these challenges, the recent challenges that they were associating with um, a lack of access to waste, their decreasing access and their struggles with having lower daily incomes because of it. And so to highlight, here's an example. It's not only here that the trucks and drivers are more and more, but everywhere. The government is giving work to people and they come and get the waste early in the morning and we cannot say anything to them. We have no right to stop them as they have proper jobs. It's difficult for me to get anything here now. So despite women's routines and histories of collecting waste in the same places for many years, decades, or even generations, women held this common perception that the new actors in the vehicles are entitled to the garbage because of their sanctioned status as workers. This excerpt also picks up on the early in the morning uh, piece, which I will pick up on here in the next slide. So we women go and pick waste by 4 a.m. early in the morning, but these AMC trucks start at 11 p.m. and finish at 3 a.m. So we're getting much less material now. It's all gone. And so then we asked, well, why don't you go work at 11 p.m.? And they said, oh, no, no, no. We cannot go outside at that time at night. We feel afraid of the darkness, the drunken men and harassment at that time. So these kinds of quotes indicate an important temporal barrier for women workers that it's not safe or socially acceptable to work overnight in public space. And in addition, new rules in the city announced in 2018 now require waste to be collected from popular late night eateries, markets and campuses overnight. And so previously these were really important sites for women to have access to a lot of discarded packaging and beverage containers and they would go early in the morning just before sunrise to get them, but now they're gone by 3 a.m. So this contemporary moment in solid waste management modernization is leading to a masculinization of waste work in Ahmedabad as job tasks like operating equipment, driving vehicles, and working overnight in public space are predominantly performed by men in this sociocultural context. And so in addition to increasing competition in new actors on the scene, women also explained the impact that recent anti-littering campaigns and the new waste management rules were having on their access to materials. So for example, because of the Swatch Avion, people do not throw any garbage outside. People do not let us inside the residential societies to pick waste either. Big bins are put inside and now they throw their waste there now. And then she goes on to explain that there's fines for people and they're very afraid. And then she says, so now I just pick up whatever I can get on the roads. What else can be done? I used to get three bags daily. Now I just get a single bag. So previous to this cleanliness campaign and these new rules, household waste in Ahmedabad was discarded on a daily basis into the public domain or outside space. 
and away from the purity and cleanliness of inside space. And so there is uh, community waste bins kind of centrally located in different neighborhoods where usually in, in, in higher income neighborhoods like this photo, a maid would go and, and put the garbage in that bin every day. Um, so there's two things that are happening here. First is that these community waste bins, which used to be an important site for women to access materials, these are being removed systematically from Ahmedabad streetscape because they are considered to be an eyesore and they were being replaced by this sort of door-to-door -door mechanized collection system that's been mandated. And then second, people are now having to keep their waste inside their homes or within the gates of their residential compounds or enclosures until the approved waste collector and vehicle comes to pick it up. So waste is now going from the inside space of the home or these residential enclosures directly into trucks. And this photo here just shows um, like an upper middle class building and then the, the waste bins are actually locked up in a gate outside and the, the guard has the key to that gate. So while waste materials can be shifted to inside spaces, what I argue is that Dalit women recyclers bodies and labor still remain linked to the physical and ritual pollution of untouchability and thus outside space. And so they're not able or willing to enter inside spaces to claim waste materials in this context. And that's due to certainly external enforcement by the gate guards and residents of these um, houses. But for women recyclers, the invisibility of inside spaces is also perceived to be associated with various threats. So risks of harassment and violence, as well as just being accused of theft. So waste management is changing and it's being re-spatialized. Um, but the socio-cultural norms around untouchability and patriarchy are not, are not changing. So what I've been seeing in this context is basically that women are working harder, they're walking longer routes, they're going for extra rounds, and they're trying to access other forms of gender and caste-based labor or work like sweeping and cleaning to make ends meet now. So this respatialization of waste management perhaps represents an enclosure of waste, or um, you know, a lot of the literature discusses the dispossession of the informal sector. But also the informal sector also finds ways around, around these uh, forms of enclosure. So for women recyclers, what I argue is that this often leads to more precarious adaptations leading to physical, mental, and financial burdens. Um, and so, yeah, basically this, this kind of improvisation comes at a cost. And so my final point here is that women recyclers often explicitly, and they explicitly used popular cleanliness rhetoric in describing their everyday struggles. And so these expressions were pretty nuanced as many were internalizing the popular aesthetic values and aspirations of the Swatch Abion campaign, while also expressing the simultaneous feeling of betrayal or exclusion from work opportunities in the modern clean city. So for example, it feels good that the roads are clean and the city is looking good, but it affects our work, we cannot get any material. So these kinds of excerpts challenge the notion that imaginaries of the clean, modern, world-class city are exclusively held and valued by elite actors. And instead it points to the divergent and shifting environmental subjectivities and logics, political agency and contradictory desires that can emerge in the production of the clean city. So to conclude, I suggest that attention to waste labor and, and the embodiment of waste labor reveals the ways that popular imaginaries and mechanisms intended to produce clean, sustainable modern cities are reproducing insecurities and causing damage to socially differentiated gendered bodies in ways that do things like deny opportunities for work, that cause harm to well-being, 
and that deny the substantive experience of being a modern citizen in the clean city. So attending to embodiment and emotion, in some of my newer work, I'm working with emotion a bit more, um, this can deepen our understandings of the complexities and contradictions involved in urban environmental governance and infrastructural transformations. And this might help perhaps inform the imagining and production of more equitable and reparative approaches to building urban futures, starting from what already exists. And so thinking forward, um, my research now is sort of expanding on this work by investigating smart city technological interventions and development. And so smart city interventions have been really positioned centrally in India's response to the COVID-19 pandemic in efforts to sort of clean up and sanitize and surveil the city. So um, yeah, in some of my new work, I'm looking at the ways that low-income communities are being targeted and transformed by these efforts to rapidly sanitize, surveil, and revitalize the city in the, in the context of COVID. Thanks. That was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Whitmer. Um, Thank you everyone. This was really fantastic. And there were so much resonances across your different uh, talks and also with last week's panel. Some of you even explicitly made those connections with uh, what Dr. Hurd had spoken about last week. Um, one of the things I really value about all of your work is thinking about these different scales at which we have to understand waste. Um, so thinking about like the global uh, the global flows of waste and why waste, um, why particular kinds of waste work and flows of waste happen in some areas of the world. Uh, Dr. February, you spoke about that a lot and, and Dr. Arafin, um, attention to the embodied scale, right? And how these, these global flows really um, are manifest through different kinds of axes of difference uh, at, at the embodied scale as you were really uh, referring to there, Dr. Whitmer. Um, so thank you for that. I thought, yeah, there was so much there. We do have, I think, a question here from Jen Hosek, so we can start with that one. Um, also, I want to open it up for you all as well, like the three panelists, if you have questions of each other. I always think that that, um, that can make for a pretty stimulating discussion. But we'll start with um, Jen's question here in the chat. So she asks, in, in that we know that, what, that germs do produce disease, what structure for waste management would the speakers propose to protect health and protect the workers that they are forefronting? I can take a, a shot at that. If, Keisha, do you wanna go? You can go ahead and I will follow up. I'm, I'm not gonna give a straightforward answer. I would just say that you know the theory that we know that 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 germs make disease uh, uh, germ theory is, is often used in sanitary engineering um, projects and, and all kinds of different scientific and what I call techno managerial projects. But I think what you see across all of our three different sites is actually a very old theory of infectious disease and, and sickness is still at work. And that is uh, ideas of miasmas, ideas that um, you know, uh, informal housing or dirty people, which often is, is, is a uh, phrase that, that goes across all different sectors of marginalization from race, class, gender. Um, you, so you actually still see older forms of, of ideas about, about disease and illness exerting themselves and how waste is managed today in all of these different contexts. Um, so even that assumption, we know that germs make disease, uh, is one that actually still, I, I don't think is really drives a, a lot of um, 
sanitation interventions in, in the three sites that, that we talked about, unfortunately. Um, ideas for protecting the workers that we all work with. I, I'll, I'll maybe let other people talk a bit about that too. Uh, just building on what you said, um, I accept that uh, my e-waste workers, because of the work that they're involved in, they have heightened exposure to many different illnesses. Um, my argument here is not to deny that, but in the same way, formalized uh, processes of waste, manage waste management um, puts in policies and procedures that protect those workers, whether they be the drivers, whether it be the collectors. The government is not invested in providing that same level of safety and protection to informal, informal waste workers. So it's not just an issue that you know, germs produce, produce disease, it's that one class of workers are protected from that disease, whereas another class is not. So I, I, that would be my response to that. Yeah, and I think I would add, um, so the, the paper that I wrote at the beginning of my, the first paper that I published from this project was about perceived well-being by these uh, women waste workers. And it sort of emphasized the expertise and strategies and flexibility of, of the work and like and, and how they conduct this work. And so there's an understanding that there are definitely threats and like there's, you know, understandings of like disgust associated with certain types of garbage. But that's why those routes that women go on every day, like they know their route, they know their neighborhood, they know where there's going to be good, like perceived good, clean garbage versus like dirty garbage. Like they know that some apartment buildings will have more biomedical waste and needles and they just avoid those bags. I saw women like they would like pick up a bag and just throw it away because they didn't want to touch because they could just by the weight of it or the feel of it, they just knew that there was something in there that was dangerous to them. So there's a lot of like embodied experiential expertise that I found in the work that um, gets overlooked by sort of like occupational health approaches uh, to bio, biophysical, um, biomedical approaches to waste. Um, and I mean, in that paper, I also talk about like how when I ask about the threats, it's not about cuts and scrapes and, and stuff, because that, that's sort of just seen as being very normal. Um, and it's there was a lot of concern about social threats and stigmas and being like yelled at by people or um, spiritual can contamination by touching like dead people's clothes is was like a very important thing that women recyclers wanted to avoid. And so I think to wrap this up, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's this big push towards formalizing these workers and protecting their health by giving them things like gloves and masks and giving them like proper jobs. Um, but then what ends up happening in a lot of cases, I mean, at least in the, the case of um, the context of India, is sometimes that those formal jobs have certain conditions of labor that don't really work within women's lives and their, their you know, tasks of social reproduction. And so they end up not being able to conform to those jobs or they perceive that, for example, um, they know that they can touch certain garbage and not others if they're working on the streets, but if they are employed as a sweeper or a municipal worker, they have to touch all of the garbage no matter what. And, you know, the provision of, of PPE by the municipalities is pretty hit or miss. So, yeah, that was one thing. I talked to a few municipal workers and I talked to a lot of waste pickers and there was this, I was really surprised by this idea that the waste pickers have so much flexibility, whereas the municipal workers have to touch everything and they're 
like dirtier. That was the common perception. Just, just to add one more layer of complication to this, there's um, great work done by Rosalind Fredericks, a geographer at NYU uh, who works um, on a big open dump in, in Dakar. And she actually finds in, in her research that a lot of pickers don't want to talk about the health risk on the dump at all. Like they don't want any kind of documentation by anthropologists, geographers, medical professionals about the toxicity of the work, because then that can be easily used um, to dispossess them from the work. It's, it's actually one of the things to, to shut down uh, the dump in, in Dakar or, or modernize it rather, uh, which is the shutdown. Um, so, so actually people, um, so yeah, even part of this complicates this question even more is that people don't want these, these health risks documented because it could lead to their, their dispossession. And I think that fits really well with Josie's work and comments too. Yeah, Victoria. Hi, um, thank you so much. I actually had a question for Dr. Whitmer um, about um, what is kind of happening with these, um, with the women waste pickers right now. And I, I think it's so interesting as to how the, the, all these modern environmental initiatives are kind of working against um, the livelihoods of these people. And so as the surveillance for those initiatives increase, um, and surveillance of the women also increases, right? In terms of like public perception and as the waste moves from public to private spaces, are they able to access that waste? Like what is actually, is it is it just being collected and stored in private spaces or it's, is it being like recycled? Um, and I think um, you just mentioned that it, the field is, the formalized field is becoming gendered. And so are they, and it doesn't fit with um, like their lifestyle, but is that something that they're kind of considering? Like are, are the women waste pickers um, interested in the municipal work? Are they like, what is their alternative? Um, yeah. Great, there's lots, there's lots that I could talk about there. Um, I mean, in terms of like right now, I don't know because I have not been there um, since since the pandemic started. Um, I did some phone interviews with some uh, like a small sample of, of seven uh, participants during the beginning, like when India went into a really strict lockdown. And one sort of extension of this research that I found through those phone calls was that um, in sort of labeling essential work and non-essential work, it was the municipal, like the trucks, well, not municipal, private, it's a private private public um, partnership um, but those trucks and those ma like male mostly male workers were able to continue as the formal official waste collectors of the city whereas the informal women were like had to stay home and the slum areas were like really highly policed on the outside of them so that they had, didn't really have any way to get to go out and make income and so they were taking a lot of loans um, from money lenders to to get through and, and relying on uh, services within the slum areas um what was the second part of that question <laughs> um i think just that, oh formalization um, yes. Our, our, yes yeah um okay so the there is a third paper coming up from my dissertation that's actually about this this idea of like collectivizing and organizing because there are a few organizations in Ahmedabad that are doing like they're trying to make these cooperatives and there's a big trade union of informal workers and 
it's kind of it's kind of been a bit hard because there's some cities in India that certainly have had some very successful um, collaborations with the municipality for women to go and collect door to door and do that um, recycling work. In Ahmedabad, though, um, even like really well known established organizations are having a bit of a hard time accessing these kinds of contracts or being included in formalization schemes because it is relying so heavily on the private sector and um, and the mechanization. So for example, when they put out their call for door-to-door -door, um, um, bids on these contracts, one of the requirements for bidding was that you had to have your own fleet of waste collection vehicles. So, um, you know, cooperatives of women door-to-door -door recyclers were precluded from even bidding on those door-to-door -door waste collection contracts. And to jump forward a little bit, um, later on, the, the high court sort of ruled when, when one of the organizations tried to contest this new system, they ruled that the private companies should find ways to include uh, waste pickers. And so the organization went to a bunch of these companies and they were offered jobs for like 40 members with, you know, there's 50,000 waste pickers in the city, but about, there's uh, 40 members could go and ride in the back of the waste collection trucks and sort out recyclables as they drove around the city. And the women were like, their perception was like, no, that's super unsafe. Two, our like husbands and family members won't let us drive around with men in a truck from outside of our communities. And three, like, I can't drive on a truck from eight to five. I have to get my kids to school by 10. So that's, you know, one, one aspect of, uh, of what's been going on in terms of formalizing there. I see there's a comment in the chat about um, another aspect of this chain of commodification uh, is often the production process. And so while I was in Ghana, while my work was basically in the scrapyard, I actually went on a tour of one of the steel mills. So where they take that scrap metal and they reproduce um, forging balls or um, I'm even forgetting the name of the steel that they use for construction. And it was interesting because in that factory setting, the, the heat, it was suffocating. Like, I honestly think if you had asthma, you couldn't work in there. So it was just extremely hot. A lot of the young men did not have the requisite um, safety uh, equipment in terms of shoes and clothing. Um, if you went into the grinding facility there, you know, you come out and you touch your face and there's this, rough feeling. So there's a lot of particulate matter all in the air and they're working there. And it's perceived that because they're working in the formal sector that they're doing so much better, right? But if I, if thinking about their experience and the conditions under which they work versus the e-waste workers, there's not that much difference. Actually, the e-waste workers will be will, uh, um, receiving a lot more money for the work they were doing compared to those young men that were actually working in, in, in those factories. So it was just interesting how, you know, with both within the formal and informal sector, you know, how this sort of exploitation continues to take place. And that it's an exploitation based on the fact that all of these people I need, uh, they uh, the state has sort of abandoned its responsibility to provide the various safety nets and economic opportunities, whether it's education, healthcare, et cetera in most of their communities. Um, I wanna follow
follow up on this idea of the discursive shifts that have helped position waste as a kind of frontier of commodification. And one of the discursive shifts I'm interested in, or the, or the discourses I'm interested in is or our discourses of efficiency and how efficiency has become this kind of signifier of like a good and modern waste infrastructure system and collection. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering partly like how is efficiency constructed and how is that itself based on a particular kind of visibility? like what visibilities are um, help us think of something as efficient and what is invisibilized in these discourses of efficiency. Um, so yeah, I don't know how, how much that might pertain to your different projects, but how, how do we see discourses of efficiency operating here and like how efficient are they really? I could, uh, I just would add something here. I, in my archival research, I actually came to see that the word efficiency as kind of a um, substitute for a European um, racial supremacy, almost. Uh, one thing that really stood out in, in one document I'm thinking about specifically was in, in the early um, 1930s, uh, the, the, the British system that was still left of, of solid waste management in Cairo was really starting to fall apart and was not doing well at all. But all of these reports actually had in them small acknowledgement that the system was falling apart and it was actually no longer efficient, but then massive meditations on the European equipment that had been imported and how in the abstract, how efficient they were. They weren't working in place, like in the GR, in the contingent city and problems that, that Cairo was kind of throwing at um, the, these managers were not working, but just descriptions of Italian brooms, which at the time were, were the best, most efficient in the world. It still actually, you know, holds some kind of um, a symbolic weight in, in sweeping, I think. Uh, you know, all these different kind of mechanized things that have been imported from Europe, from Italy, France, the UK, um, but they weren't working, right? So I came to read that discourse of efficiency as as colonial, number one, actually having its roots in the way that waste has been talked about for, for decades and about a hundred years, um, but then just also a marker of, of this kind of European racial su supremacy in a sense, like that was the word that was used to erase local knowledge and, um, uh, and actually efficient modes of managing waste too. So yeah, thanks for that question. I think that's a, that's a really interesting one. I think in the context of Ghana, efficiency, technology, and cleanliness, um, the boundary between these three words is very um, blurred. So efficiency also talks about, means that we're using technology and technology means that things will be cleaner. And so that is typically the approach that they have. And so if you think of efficiencies equated to technology and cleanliness, then all of a sudden the informal sector does not meet that mark. Even, even though uh, based on our discussions, they are able to accumulate and recycle way more waste than the formal sector, just because of how far and wide their networks are in the city. But again, Efficiency is equal to technology and cleanliness. So, yeah, I just I just made a little note when Carolyn asked the question that uh, efficiency equals machinery, equipment, comma colonial. <laughs> so very much building from what you guys both just said. 
um, in, in like the, the Indian or Undavad solid waste management vision. I actually cut my quote short that I read out loud, but they have, the, it's the full quote is they have a goal of achieving a quote, fully mechanized waste transport system to ensure timely and efficient transportation of waste from households to the dump site. So they actually use the term uh, efficient in there. And as Keisha just said, like, the informal systems provide these services at zero cost to municipalities and are much, they've been proven to be much more effective at actually recycling and diverting recyclable materials from the waste stream. So I don't know how it can be actually more, like how are they measuring efficiency? Like what is efficiency? And it seems to, yes, be machinery, technology, equipment. And that's all part, part of that aesthetic sort of vision of the modern city. Thank you all for chiming in on that one. Um, are there any other questions out there or do you three have questions for each other? Oh yes, Ariel, go ahead. Uh, yeah, thank you for wonderful presentations all. And I learned so much and, um, and I hope to incorporate this. I teach a course on commodification, um, but I'd like to follow up on your question, uh, Carolyn, um, by asking how sort of greenwashing has also played into this legitimation of what is effectively, you know, and in India, we, we saw this already, the green revolution, right? So the dispossession of, you know, millions of farmers with mechanization, you know, and stuff like that. So there's already been a use of the green um, in that context, but also for these European companies, these Western companies coming in, um, selling themselves as solutions to um, and sustainable solutions um, for waste management. I'm wondering how that discourse plays into uh, local conceptions and, um, and local governance issues. There was lots of nodding. So yeah, go ahead, Keisha. Um, I'm not sure if I will answer your question really well, but um, coming out of this research, um, I'm currently revising an article that looks at green capitalism, circular economies, basically calling them a chimera, right? Uh, in the sense that, um, all they do is function to extend the reach of capital capitalist accumulation into areas or spaces that previously were not sort of inculcated into that system. So waste uh, as a field becomes this primary sort of a new field for accumulation, waste that um, previously might have, we wanted to externalize as far away as possible, right? So there's this, um, so my position on, on greenwashing uh, I see it, and maybe I should be careful, I see it in uh, reports coming out of a lot of UN agencies. I see it in the work to some extent of the, uh, I think it's the Ellen MacArthur uh, Foundation, where all of a sudden a lot of this waste work done by marginalized uh, gendered persons in the global south is being reimagined as fitting within this sort of green and circular economy or sort of the shift of capitalism into this new green phase, right? So all the, but all it's done is just extend the reach of capital, 
to places that can be further exploited. So why are we still exploiting virgin ores in Ghana through gold mining or um, in other places in Latin America? You know, now we're also going back to those same places where we dumped all our waste and now saying, you know, there, there's value in this. So we're going to extract it again. And companies are selling this idea that, you know, we are diverting so much waste away from the landfill and we're doing this as um, sort of the, a, a label of the greenness or the commitment to green initiatives. But nobody's challenging the sort of historical or structural um, conditions under which, uh, uh, let's say, informal waste recycling occurs or waste picking occurs. Nobody's really challenging that. And that's why I call it a chimera uh, to begin with. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Thank you. Yeah, I would just I would just add to that that yes, like capitalism folds in sustainability politics and, and ethics um, to create to create more value. Um, and like I see that in my in my work in terms of like the smart city rhetoric that's really, really popular these days worldwide. But in India, there's a whole bunch of articles in the media now and like reports by like the World Economic Forum talking about how like India is leading COVID-19 recovery through like smart city, smart city technologies. And, you know, it's often seen as being good, like green, sustainable in the context of climate change. That's great. But then when you start to explore those deeper politics of sustainability and like how class biased a lot of these solutions are, these technological, you know, corporate ca uh, capital led capital intensive solutions. Um, there's a lot of inherent inclusions and exclusions in these sort of approaches. And so, and that's what, that's one thing that I found really interesting in some of the results from my doctoral dissertation was the, those clean and green, clean and green city discourses and visions that were even held by people that were really strongly excluded by it. Like the waste pickers still wanted to live in a clean and green city and were really happy about that, but were just excluded from, from any opportunities to make a livelihood in that space. So it's, to me, it's like, there's no, there's no clear answer. It's just kind of, it's kind of messy and complicated in that way. Yeah, I would just add that in, in Egypt, um, discourses of sustainability and green are one of the primary justifications for what I would say would be uneven urbanization. So the expansion of satellite cities that are, that are gated, the expansion and the rebuilding of this new administrative capital um, outside Cairo, uh, those are all being justified in that they're more sustainable, they're more green, and then um, gives fodder or gives reason to uh, de-invest or not invest at all in historical parts of Cairo uh, that are more marginalized. So, and I think that's one of the primary discourses that that enables all of that. I'll also say that there is um, a level, I think this is the right word, of, of devolution with sustainability and green and waste markets. So uh, basically the pieces of the pie of, of waste get smaller and smaller and smaller for pickers to access because um, you know, upper class graduates of some of the best universities in Egypt are starting all these NGOs around sustainability and green and recycling, um, primarily drawing from from Western discourses and examples in Paris, New York, or or London, for example, and starting all these NGOs to start collecting, you know, recyclable waste, electronic waste, and that's actually just cutting into the livelihoods of people who've been doing it for decades without those discourses, right? So they're, they're, so those yeah, so those kind of things like sustainability and green are actually working against um, 
informal workers and semi-formal workers as well. Thank you all, thanks. We're all right. Hi, Carolyn, it's David McDonald here. Can I ask, make a comment? Yeah, go ahead, David. Great. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm actually on my phone offline, so I, I can't get my camera going, but um, thank you very much. Those were fantastic, uh, really interesting talks. Uh, thanks so much. Very exciting. Um, just a comment on efficiency. Um, I mean, as the speakers alluded to, it's generally very narrow financial criteria that, um, that private companies use. And they're often mimicked by public uh, service providers, unfortunately. Um, but one, one thing that's worth noting is that the, the private sector, even on its very narrow uh, criteria for efficiency, is no more efficient than the public sector on the, on the whole. And this, you know, two decades of research on this has been very clear, meta studies, case studies, that uh, the private sector is no more efficient on average, and if anything, less efficient. And, and this is one of the reasons that a lot of municipalities are actually bringing these services back in-house um, because they've recognized that they're not actually saving any money, that there's a lot of legal costs associated with monitoring contracts. And um, you know, if the company uh, goes broke, they have to rebuild all their services. So that, that's, that's one point. The other thing though, is I, I think we don't want to abandon the use of the word efficiency. It's a very powerful uh, emotive term. I think what we want to do is just use it in in more progressive ways and so you know there's a literature on social efficiency with with public services um and you know incorporating different types of criteria and and reclaiming that term and not letting it be fully commodified and taken over by the private sector and and pushing our public operators to rethink how how we define efficiency and and how we compare ourselves or not to the private sector so um, I think it's uh, it's a really powerful word that we we need to sort of reclaim rather than than abandon. Thanks, David. Does anyone want to speak to that or follow up on that? I mean, I could say so, David. You're speaking about the efficiency between the the public and the private spheres. Um, I also wonder if we could think about efficiency across formal and informal kinds of waste collection. Uh, one of the reasons I asked the question is because when uh, Rafi visited one of my classes last year and someone asked him about like how efficient recycling is in Kingston, like it's so efficient, you just you get rid of things at the curb. And Rafi, I don't want to speak for you, but you had said something like, well, actually in like Cairo, the informal waste system is like way more efficient than that. Like here we don't see where that waste goes but so much of it or the recycling goes but so much of it, so much of it gets tossed out as as myra was speaking about last week whereas that because of these more informal kinds of systems that happen in so many different parts of the world they're actually high much more highly efficient um, if we want to use that term um so i guess i was thinking i don't know if i was thinking of it in the same way that you were david but also like if we are thinking that there is something to be said for efficiency and we're comparing across these sectors, um, well, there are there are more efficient ways of doing this that aren't the, the like the hyper modern tech, technical private kinds of, of systems. Well, one thing that concerns you, though, Carolyn, is that is the, the efficiency that you see in recycling, like, you know, some of the rates that are quoted um, uh, by the Zebelin community, like 80 percent of materials collected are high, require necessarily a high amount of hand like hand work like it cannot be mechanized mm -hmm. like the, the reasons they extract so much is because it's highly toxic and so uh, to respond to david i i think that efficiency as a concept and a discourse has a place in a in an eco-socialist reimagining of waste management but 
I, I just don't think it's it's time to reclaim it yet. I feel like justice and equity first have to be figured out um, before we go to reclaiming uh, efficiency. Because exactly like the, you know the people I've worked with, eighty percent you know recycling rate, extremely efficient, highly toxic, highly unjust. So so that might not be the first you know um, order. So I, I always I'm, I'm a, you're, you picked up I'm phobic of this efficiency word. Um, not because I don't want to reclaim it, but I think first justice and equity has to be sorted out and we can then perhaps go to reclaiming um, efficiency. So, I mean, some of these other uh, equity and justice work actually might be ineff inefficient. And I think that's also okay. Yeah, sorry. sorry. I just wanted to say, Rafi, I agree. I think the my, my point is reclaiming these terms with through the lens of of, of justice uh and and sustainability and and equity um and i mean it's a, it's a it's such a powerful term out there that's used so quickly to shut down so many alternatives to privatization that we, we have to have a response to it um and so i think you're absolutely right um you know we do it at the same time and we, we reclaim the, the terms through the lenses of equity and justice Carolyn, um, Myra has a hand up, but after Myra speaks, I want to just add to this top, well, this topic on efficiency. No, Kasha, how about you speak first? Okay, thanks. I was just going to really add, I think we need to focus on scale also when we talk about efficiency, because recycling operating at the local scale can be uh, classified as very efficient. But from Myra's presentation last week, and even from some of the data that um, uh, in, in my own research, on a global scale, we realize that recycling is not very efficient. So efficiency is a debate that needs to be, you know, really focused on. We really need to focus on scale when we're also talking about efficiency. That's all I would add. So we are almost up for time here. It's 2.30. So Myra, can you go quickly? Yeah, I loved your thing, your presentations. I'll get in touch with each of you individually. But I just wanted to say, like, lest, lest we forget, we do have informal waste pickers here in Kingston. You often see them after uh, students have had parties. Um, and, um, and income challenged people go around and pick up our own students garbage and sort through it and also if you go to the Kingston area recycling center uh, they take advantage and I say this hyper sarcastically of the fact that we are the penitentiary capital of Canada and they use um, ex uh, um, uh, prisoners to be sorting through our recycling here in Kingston so lest we lest we think that you know this is some far away problem or as far away as Vancouver, um, certainly Kingston has a whole informal network of waste pickers who are uh, unprotected, undervalued, unrecognized, and silently pick through our Queen's community's waste with no comment that I've ever seen from either students or um, our uh, administration. Yeah. And I also had put that in the chat that there are folks in Kingston collecting empties who will be out there today, no doubt, for St. Patrick's Day um, that are, yeah, in some senses more efficient, but are doing that, that really laborious and, and in many cases toxic kind of dangerous work. Okay, with that, we're a little bit over time, so we're going to wrap up. Uh, thank you, everyone. This was a really wonderful conversation. Um, I really appreciate having all of you here today. 
Um, and for everyone, thank you for coming out on what is a beautiful sunny day out there. So I appreciate that you're all at your screens right now. Um, and yeah, please join us in two weeks time for the last SNID of the year uh, with the Black Studies chairs. Um, but for now, I hope you have a really good rest of the week and weekend. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, folks. <laughs>